This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for March 28th, 2018. In this episode, we'll look at the security issues raised by recent revelations about how Facebook obtains, stores, and shares user data. Plus, how big and how expensive can current SSD storage get? Researchers claim to be able to store digital data as DNA. And how concerned should you be about voice control devices eavesdropping on your family conversations? The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. Do you remember in last week's episode, I mentioned that some company had just announced a 30 terabyte SSD? Yeah, which sounded ridiculous. That's huge. It is huge. I actually have a new iMac and I have a 512 gigabyte SSD, which as SSDs go is pretty big. 30 terabytes, that's 60 times as big. That would take all of my music collection about 30 times over. Yeah, that's a lot of data. Yeah, it is. Between music and videos, I I rip a lot of Blu-rays and DVDs, so that takes up a lot of space. So I noticed last week that that 30 terabyte record for an SSD was not very long lasting because a company announced a 100 terabyte SSD. 100 terabytes. I'll link in the show notes to an article on Engadget. The company who is releasing this is Nimbus Data, who I never heard of. The example that they give is that would hold 20 million songs if you assume that they're about five megabytes each. I I don't really think that Anybody has that amount of songs in their library. (laughs) Well, Apple Music and Spotify do. Can you imagine that they'd only need two discs for all their music? Because they all have about 30 or 40 million. (laughs) Only need two drives and they could, you know, get another 10 for backups and they could have a, their data center would fit in my office. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Of course, you know, they they don't give any indication of what this is going to cost. No. And and I think I saw something about the 30 terabyte costing like $20,000 or something, which on the one hand, this is ridiculously expensive for us, but this isn't for us. This is for data centers. A data center that can put 30 terabytes on an SSD, remember, this is a lot faster than a hard drive. So if they have data going in and out, they're saving a lot of time and time is money. And it's also using a lot less electricity and they pay for the electricity to run the disks. And they also pay for the air conditioning to keep the data centers cool enough. So over time, as flash storage gets more affordable, I think a lot of data centers are going to go in that direction because of the savings in electricity alone. It's important to note that most data centers do use flash. Remember, we were talking last week about fusion drives, how you have part SSD and part hard drive. In a data center, they talk about hot storage and cold storage. Hot storage is the email that you just got and that you're going to be downloading. And cold storage is your emails from three years ago that are archived that you may want to look at once, if ever. So they're they're hot storage. They often use SSDs, and this is maybe 1% or 2 or 5% of their data, and all the rest they're using hard drives. But in the future, if they can move to very big SSDs, it saves space, it saves electricity, and it's faster. This will continue to evolve, and, and as these technologies continue to advance, of course, we're going to get eventually at a consumer level a lot higher capacity right right now i mean there's no individual who could afford you know to buy a 100 terabyte ssd and probably won't for the next few years at least i think bill gates could buy a few yeah i guess just a few billionaires who who wouldn't mind having a 100 terabyte ssd in their computer yeah i saw something on the bbc just this morning and they were talking about storing data in dna 
Now, this isn't taking your DNA and somehow injecting your data. This is actually creating artificial DNA. What they do is they take the one-bit data, zeros and ones that you have, and they put it into four-bit code, which is the letters A, C, G, and T in DNA, and they create artificial DNA, and they put it in a little test tube. And they were showing an example of how this works, that I think they said that they could store all of the data that exists in the world in the back of a van, if it was all in DNA. And they were explaining how they write it and how they read it, and that a number of major companies, they mentioned Microsoft and others, are looking into this technology for the future, probably because it could be faster, it could hold more data, would save electricity as well. Wow, that's a really fascinating concept. Imagine the things that you, that you could potentially do with that. You could hide data in some interesting places. <laughs> I think the reason that they've done this is that they've learned how to read DNA, to decode it, and now that they can encode it, all they have to do is create some of these molecules, and they can be as long as, as, as they need to be, and they'll be able to just drop them in a DNA decoder and read stuff. It's really spooky, isn't it? It's kind of like Blade Runner and Black Mirror stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, imagine like... If somebody sees a little piece of hair or some lying somewhere, they're not going to assume, oh, that could contain data, but maybe it could. <laughs> yes. Well, everything could contain data. The dust on my desk, the paper that I'm writing on with a pencil, all of it could contain data. That's pretty scary. Dust, that's a funny one because usually dust is the enemy of data, right? Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> but then how do you know which dust has data? That's going to be interesting. You'd have to have like a a metal detector type thing. How do you get like a, a, a drive slot that you can put some dust into to read it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that would work. So last week we talked about the possibility that your smart speaker or even your phone could be spying on you. What do you think about this, Josh? Are you worried? I know you have got some Alexa devices. Yeah, I've, I've got one uh, Amazon Echo. However, I, I don't use any kind of um, voice activated service, I guess, other than that. So Siri, I don't use that way. I don't have a, a Google device or, or Microsoft device that I can activate with my voice. And as I said, uh, I think maybe a few weeks ago with, with my Amazon Echo, I do like to keep it muted when I'm not actively using it. However, other people in my home tend to unmute it and leave it unmuted. So, <laughs> so much for that idea. But Well, that's the risk, isn't it? The last person to use it is responsible for turning the lights off. Right, right. Well, this is a risk. And I've written an article for the Indigo Max security blog called, Is Your Smart Speaker Spying on You? And I'll link in the show notes. There have been some interesting cases. For example, an early Google Home device was found to record everything its owner said. Google fixed this, but these devices are just one bug away from recording everything you do, aren't they? Yeah, I suppose so. You could certainly look at it that way. And and because you've got these microphones that are just active all, all the time, what's to stop, you know, a nation state actor, right, from being able to find some flaw and exploit it to just tap everybody and spy on everybody all the time, right? You mean like they already do. <laughs> all your phone calls, all your emails, all your text messages that aren't encrypted. To be fair, I suppose it's possible for governments to already do much of that, as, as you mentioned. So, so with these third-party de devices, yeah, maybe there's less of a risk there. Certainly, I, 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 guess it's, I guess it's true that there really is less of a risk there. Well, I'm more worried about these devices either using the data they get to target you with ads or things like that, or being the device is being hacked and someone 
gets into your device in your home. And, and the, the one thing I always think of is that they know that you're not home. For instance, hey, honey, let's get going. The plane to Bermuda is leaving in an hour. We have to hurry for our three-week vacation. And then, you know, you either get someone who comes in and throws a big party or someone who steals all your stuff. Yeah, it's it's something that is worth considering. And again, if you've got one of these devices, if you can mute it, and you're going to be having a conversation like that, it's probably a good idea to make sure it's muted just in case. One of the things about these devices is that they all have special wake words. For example, Amazon is Alexa. Apple devices is Hey Siri. Google is OK Google. Is that what they use now? Right, right. And in some cases, you can change this. So if you've got someone in your home named Alexa, fortunately, you can change the wake word for your Amazon devices. But if you've got someone in your home named Siri, or unfortunately, you named your dog Siri, um, there's nothing you can do about it if you use an Apple device. So th this is a little bit of a problem that these devices wake up on when they hear that particular word. So if someone just says within earshot of your device, hey, seriously, what do you think? That is actually going to wake up your device. And I'm sorry if any listeners just had their devices beep, but that actually works. So fortunately, some devices let you change this, but many of them don't. And I think that's a bit of a, a limitation. And Amazon has tried to kind of do something to that regard. They they let you change your activation word to Amazon or Echo. But again, the, the problem there is that these are words that people use anyway. You know, like I, I, I'll talk about Amazon to my wife. Oh, yeah, we should add that to our Amazon shopping cart or something. But that's exactly what they want you to say. So as soon as they hear their name, they wake up and they're ready to uh, check your email next time you say something about Amazon and see if you all of a sudden get something from Amazon about, you know, the cat food or the diapers or whatever it is. I'm, I'm certainly of the opinion that you should on all of these devices be able to customize your your wake word. Otherwise, it's way too easy for people to exploit this. I think we might have mentioned in the past, but there there was a... Alexa, I think it was, there was a, an ad campaign that would, uh, would say, Alexa, tell me about this burger or something like that, this hamburger. And the company that was doing this ad campaign had recently edited their Wikipedia page for this burger. And so it had this mouthwatering description that now all of a sudden your Amazon Echo is just like reading out loud to you, which is really sneaky. And of course, that got shut down really quickly. Although it's not the most ethical way to <laughs> to do advertising. Um, <laughs> it's clever, sure. And, and, and that's not the most malicious potential use, though, of doing something like that. A few months ago, there was some talk of a dolphin attack where devices could potentially be activated by a very high frequency. And so if you were to say Alexa in a really, really high frequency that the human ear couldn't hear, your device could still be activated. Same thing with Hey Siri. And there's actually been demonstrations of this that, that researchers have done. And so potentially you could give your device a command just by having some audio play in the background on a web page that you're visiting. Yeah, these devices don't recognize your voice yet. So they don't know who's giving the command. So anyone could. And, and there were reports early on with the HomePod that if someone's on the other side of a wall, let's say you're in an apartment building and they say, hey, Siri, read my text messages. The fact that 
Siri doesn't know that it's you, as long as you are there with your iPhone on the same Wi-Fi network, Siri would read those text messages and your neighbor might hear them. Right. And so the combination of being able to set your own wake word and have it recognize the specific voices of you know yourself and, and whoever else you feel might need to legitimately access your device. Those are the two things that I think all of these companies really need to look into very closely because that that's the way to, to make these devices more secure. After the break, we'll talk about Facebook and logins and apps and quizzes and all sorts of nefarious things that have been going on with your personal data. As a security-conscious Mac user, one of the first things you probably install on a new Mac is security software from Intego. You probably tell your friends and family to do so as well. And here's something else you can tell them. Now's the perfect opportunity for first-time Intego users to get 60% savings on award-winning Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a full suite of outstanding Intego software and includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code IntegoPodcast to save 60% at checkout. That's IntegoPodcast to save 60% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. This offer will be ending soon, so don't wait much longer. Save 60% on Mac Premium Bundle X9 or Mac Washing Machine Secure X9 or Mac Internet Security X9. Just use the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. So the big news this week in security and privacy is the whole Facebook kerfuffle. We're not going to discuss all the ins and outs of this, how it relates to politics. That's a little bit off topic for us. But there are a couple of things that are very interesting. Uh, so Facebook was involved with this company called Cambridge Analytica, and they created some of these apps on Facebook. Now, if you use Facebook, you've seen these quizzes like, which Beatle am I? Or, uh, you know, what's the best song from 1990? And you click through and you go to a website and you you answer the thing and it tells you, you know, ooh, you're Paul, or this is your best song, or you're 90% this or whatever. Anytime I see somebody on my on my Facebook wall that's got one of these games, I just kind of shake my head and go, oh, brother. Well, so here's what the problem was. This company created a sort of a psychological quiz. They wanted to just get some information about people. And 270,000 users took this quiz, and somehow this company got data on 50 million people. That's an interesting multiple. And the way they did this is, let's say, Josh, you played this quiz, you know, how smart am I or whatever it is. Oh, congratulations. You're 99% smart. Once you do that quiz, if you and I are friends on Facebook, this company now has access to all of my data as well. In other words, when, when you play the quiz, they get access to the data of all your friends. Yeah, that's that's really strange because... You wouldn't think that it should work that way, right? No, it it just doesn't seem logical. E even even the fact that we know that any company collecting data is doing things in ways to trick you, this just seems beyond trickery, doesn't it? 
for me, as somebody who doesn't do these quizzes, I, w- I would think that those quizzes that other people are doing shouldn't be able to get information about me. That's very strange. Facebook has a number of settings. And if you're able to do this while you're listening, go to Facebook, find settings. Now, I'm doing this on my Mac in Safari. It's a little triangle icon on the top right. You go down and you select settings. It's in a different location if you're using the app on iOS or if you're using a browser on iOS. By the way, don't use the Facebook app because, first of all, it kills your battery. And second of all, it can collect more data from your device. If you're using an Android device, it can even collect all your contacts and phone calls, etc. Anyway, if you go to settings, in the sidebar on the left, you click apps. First thing you want to see is logged in with Facebook at the top. And we're going to talk about this login thing a little bit later. These are websites or apps that you have logged into using your Facebook credentials and you've authorized to access your information. For example, for me, I have five of them, Apple Music, Twitter, WordPress, Instagram, and IFTTT, which is a service that you use to automate things. What it means is if this, then that. So for instance, when I send a tweet, it gets posted to my Facebook page automatically. So if you go down a little bit, you'll see a setting for apps others use. And if you click edit, you'll see a screen showing the type of information that people can access if your friends are using apps your biography, your birthday, your relationships, things you're interested in, posts on your timeline, hometown, your app activity, etc., etc. I strongly recommend you uncheck everything. There's absolutely no reason why these apps should be allowed to access this information. And Facebook really doesn't make this very obvious. Did you ever know that this was possible? Evidently, I did because I have all of these unchecked. So Probably I read an article in maybe 2012 or 13 about this, and I went through all my privacy settings and unchecked all those. I would say probably 99% of people have never seen these settings and have no idea that they exist. Yeah, there there are all sorts of settings if you want to browse through this entire settings page. Uh, I'll link to a couple of articles on the Intego Max Security blog that I wrote a year or two ago about adjusting Facebook settings. You should really take some time and look at it and see what sort of information you can prevent them from accessing. Look at the security and login settings. Check, for instance, you can turn on two-factor authentication, get alerts about unrecognized logins. Interestingly, I got one of those just this morning from Google, from an old Google account that I don't use anymore, that someone tried to log in and that they blocked them. So I just went and deleted the account because I don't use it at all. So I mentioned that we were going to go back to this question of logging into different websites using Facebook. Now, you probably know that there are websites that you can log into using profiles from other services like Facebook and Twitter and Google. And one example is the Discuss comment service that we use on the Intego Mac podcast website and the Intego security blog to allow people to comment. It's very practical for us because it gives us a centralized interface to manage the comments. It has really good spam detection, etc., You can log into that using your email address and a password, but you can also do it more easily using your Facebook or Google or Twitter. Now, I've never really done this. And you would see these logins on this app settings page where I mentioned above that I'm logged in to Apple Music and Twitter and WordPress. And these are only for sharing data from one to the other. But I've never logged into other websites. And I've been seeing a number of people discussing lately because of this latest kerfuffle about user information that they want to get rid of Facebook. They want to delete their Facebook account, but a lot of people aren't realizing that if they do this and they've logged into a website using Facebook, they may no longer be able to access that account without Facebook. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of websites don't really have a, a backup plan. If you've always and only logged into that website using Facebook, then you may not be able to continue using that profile anymore with that website. You may actually have to create a whole new profile and start from scratch. And for a lot of people, that's problematic because you've got a history. Maybe it's a kind of thing where you're chatting with your friends and then you'll have to tell all your friends you have a new account and it could be really problematic. And I, and I saw some people on Twitter posting screenshots of their logins on Facebook that have dozens or maybe even a hundred of them. Wow. So this made me think about the whole single sign-in issue that, you know, we've talked about managing passwords in the past, and I'll put a link in the show notes to an episode we did about that. A lot of people use password managers like you and I, and, and this is a really practical way that we know that there's just one password that we use to access our password database, and then we insert this in different websites. But it really would be practical, wouldn't it, if there were some sort of single sign-in, which would work like this, the way the Facebook or Google or Twitter profile allows you to sign into to websites and services, it would be really practical if there were something like this. And there kind of have been suggested ways to do something like this. So one example of an independent login provider is OpenID. And that, that's been around for, for a very long time. If you look at their website, they say over 50,000 websites are already accepting OpenID. A lot of uh, sites where you can comment, for example, leave comments and things like that. OpenID is one of the options. So they've been around a long time. I haven't really seen much about them in recent history. In fact, if you if you look at their What is OpenID page, they still name AOL and MySpace <laughs> as some of the as some of the companies that they work with. And so it's like, well, okay, so maybe OpenID didn't really catch on very well if they're still naming those as popular sites that people are using OpenID with. Well, I recently learned that AOL is still alive. A lot of people still have AOL email accounts just because that was the first account they ever created when they got online on the internet. So, On the other hand, I haven't seen anyone mention MySpace other than to joke about it in a very long time. <laughs> right. So I, I do remember when OpenID was launched, and I remember creating an account with it, but I never encountered any websites that allowed me to use it, or at least not back then. As you say, they do have a list with a number of websites that they accept, but I've never seen that. There's another one, and, and you added this link to our show notes, Secure Quick Reliable Login. This looks like the page was made in 1993. <laughs> well, this is actually a, a service that's just about to launch. Um, it's been kind of in development for a while. And, and yes, it looks like the page is 1993, just because the guy who, who develops it likes to hand code his HTML. But <laughs> so this is the guy who does the Security Now podcast, Steve Gibson. And he's, um, he's a very smart guy. And, um, and he's come up with a, a way that instead of websites having a password, so they store something that you've given them. This, this is a, a way that it can kind of work the other direction where instead of you proving who you are to the website, the website proves who it is to you as a way to, to securely log into websites. So it's a little bit complicated to explain, but we can, you know, certainly 
recommend checking out the page and seeing what you think of it. Again, the service hasn't quite launched yet. And this is once again, just like OpenID, it's something that websites actually have to adopt before you can really use it. So it may, may be a while before this catches on if it ever does, but it's certainly an interesting concept. I like the idea of websites not having a password from me that they have to store forever. It kind of gets around that problem of, of having to remember or store in one location all of your passwords well here's an idea what if apple did something like that now we're, we're quick to criticize facebook because they gather user data we're quick to criticize google because they gather data they sell ads we criticize twitter for other reasons but what if apple a company that really doesn't need to make money off of our data were to launch something like this what if your apple id could be used as a single sign-on id since Apple is offering two-factor authentication, which is pretty robust, and, and they're starting to push it pretty heavily to people who don't have it turned on. My partner was telling me this morning that she keeps getting nagged to turn on two-factor authentication. Maybe this is something that Apple's thinking of doing in the future. It's an interesting idea, certainly. I, I, I think where there might be a challenge is I think a lot of people who are not Apple users, who aren't in the ecosystem, who don't have an iPhone or a Mac or something, you know, a lot of people I would think would have the perception of, oh, that's an Apple thing. And I'm not an Apple user. And so why would I get an Apple account? But there's an awful lot of people who don't have Apple devices who use iTunes and have Apple accounts. I just kind of anticipate that would be the biggest challenge, though, is is if somebody who's not at all in the a Apple ecosystem, they may not really even think about using something like this. But it is certainly an interesting idea. And because, as you say, a lot of people, even Windows users who've never owned an Apple physical product, have at, at least an iTunes account, so they have an Apple ID, I think it's plausible that Apple could try to, to launch something like this. So how would this work in practice? My thought is that the way that Apple's two-factor authentication works today is the first time that you log in a new device to an Apple service, you have to enter a code that you get from another device, a trusted device. When you log into iCloud.com or Apple's Apple ID management page, you have to enter a code every time, so for extra protection. So would it be like the first time you log into a website, you would need that extra code and then Apple would let you get into the website. And then, of course, that authentication would be stored somehow in a cookie. They couldn't ask you to have this two factor authentication every time you go to a website. That would be too onerous a process. Hmm. Or, or would it? I mean, well, the main interest here is to reduce friction for users. So as it stands now, if you're logged into Facebook and you go to another website where you can log in with Facebook, and you've been logged in in the same browser, then you can automatically get into that website because it's sharing a cookie. Sure. But is that secure enough for a really secure service? And I'm not thinking of banks or gambling websites and maybe not even shopping websites. I'm thinking more forums and just websites where you sign up for information or, you know, somehow you need to, to identify yourself on a website. Let's say you subscribe to an online newspaper and you need to have an account, that sort of thing. Yeah, for, for that sort of thing, I, I you know, I, I certainly don't see any problem with using a service like that. That's that's kind of using a service that you're already logged into to authenticate you. There have been some articles recently about Apple's increasing service business. And it's clear that Apple is looking to go further in this direction. I mean, they see what's going to happen. The iPhone is is becoming commoditized. All these computing devices, they're going to end up being cheaper and cheaper. 
Apple looks like they want to become a service company. And frankly, with Apple Pay now, which is a sort of authentication service, right? If you're logged into an Apple service in your browser, when you go to a website that accepts Apple Pay, you can automatically pay with Apple Pay. Maybe this is the kind of direction that they want to go in. Yeah, I could definitely see that that happening. And, and, and Apple Pay, you know, is, is definitely still picking up steam. It's still being adopted by a lot more retailers all the time. And so I, I could definitely see Apple potentially being one of these providers that allows you to log into multiple websites using one ID. In next week's episode, we're going to look at 10 types of online scams and how to make sure that you protect yourself when you're online. Until then, stay secure, Josh. Stay secure, Kirk. Remember, you can save 60% on Intego software by using the promo code INTEGOPODCAST at checkout. Hurry, the 60% savings offer will be ending soon. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. Be sure to get every episode by subscribing at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Links to the topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at intego.com slash podcasts. The Intego website is also where to find details on Intego security and utility software, intego.com.